So uh, we know that this issue that they're facing in Corinth, the, pro- the thing that prompted Paul to write about this is uh, some people in Corinth were denying that there was a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of the dead. And uh, still calling themselves Christians, still a part of everything, but just kind of letting go of the resurrection. And so Paul, really, he gives this argument focusing on the absurdity of a Christian who doesn't believe in resurrection. If Christ was not raised, then all of these things suddenly make no sense. And he gives us uh, two more in addition to these kind of seven things uh, that we'll look at this morning. So what Paul is doing is he's attacking any form of Christianity that would focus on just the temporal and immediate benefits of faith. Christianity as a social club, and then quietly let go of those things that, you know, are a little more controversial or a little more ambiguous. I don't know. And you end up with a form of faith that never talks about the hard stuff. And let me say, the problem of picking and choosing what you like and don't like, it's not just a problem for the ancient Corinthians. It's still a problem for us today and for our churches today. found this quote by Augustine, Augustine. If you believe what, if you, you, believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospels you believe but yourself. This guy lived how long ago? This has been a problem from the beginning. This idea that we can kind of pick and choose. Eh, I think the resurrection, you know, that's just something that they talk about, those apostle kind of people. But, you know, we're enlightened. We don't need that. We don't have to worry about that. Well, Paul doesn't leave us there in dealing with some of these negative things. Uh, but he has to make this strong point. If you let go of the resurrection, it is so central to the Christian faith. If you let that belief go, you've got nothing left. It's all vanity at that point. And you're to be pitied among, uh, uh, before all others. But Paul doesn't just deal with the negative of what happens if you happen to believe, uh, not believe in resurrection. He takes us to the positive and really shows us what the beauty of resurrection unlocks. And so last week we talked about first fruits and that going back to Leviticus where they take the first fruits of the grain and they give it to the priest and the priest waves it. And I tried to illustrate that and I realized just after that I'm waving gluten in Cindy, Cindy Hoffman's face. She's not in here right now. She must be running from me, so. And, uh, Uh, It's that beautiful image of God is receiving his portion first. Jesus, the firstborn, the first fruits of those who were raised back to life and who will never die again in a new resurrection body. So, uh, now we get into some uh, fuller context of that verse. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So first we were in Leviticus 23, and now we go all the way back to Genesis. Uh, where was Adam? What place was he located in the beginning of Genesis? Garden of Eden. He is in paradise. Did Adam remain in paradise? He didn't get to stay there very long. Something happened. What happened? Sin. And with sin comes what? Consequences of sin is death. In Adam, life was lost. In Adam, paradise was lost. In Christ, life is found. In Christ, paradise is recovered. So he has this chiasm structure going on here. And uh, this is just kind of thought patterns that happen in, in, uh, in the Scriptures to help us pay attention to certain things. So this first phrase, it's an ABA, so you kind of like, it's snakes like that, ABA pattern. For since through a man came death, so also through a man came resurrection. That, Adam, Christ. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all are made alive. So there's a, this chiastic movement taking place there. What was broken for humanity in Genesis is now fixed in Jesus Christ. What was lost by humanity in Genesis is found now in Jesus Christ. Jesus is a new beginning. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Jesus, the messianic king, is at the front of the resurrection line. The one who lived a sinless life and yet took on the consequences of sin was raised by God as God's own portion. But Christ is not alone. He is followed by all of those who belong to him, which uh, the Lord knows, praise be to God, that includes many of us as well. Uh, <coughs> so that begs the question, do you belong to Jesus? Are you a part of that entourage that follows him? He's the first fruits of the harvest. Are you a part of the harvest that will be to follow? So the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Uh, so this, notice this language, dominion, authority, power. Those are kingdom kinds of words. 
Those are kingly kinds of language. Uh, by the way, at the time of Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians, who did most people think had dominion, power, and authority? Caesar, right? Uh, almost every person that we read about in the New Testament lived and died under the rule and dominion of the Caesars. Dominion, authority, and power, all kinds of kingly words. And this passage in its own way directly challenges the imperial cult of that time. It also challenges as well every other kingdom out there that claims to have dominion, power, and authority. What power did Caesar have? He had power over people's lives. He could make lives miserable. He could get rid of opponents. He could crush nations and destroy and burn and pillage. But he had the power to take life, didn't he? That is part of his dominion, power, and authority. What is the power of Christ? Jesus has the power to make dead things come back to life. The power of Jesus is resurrection. So we live in a world where there are all kinds of kingdoms clamoring for our attention. Kingdoms of our, our work, our own little homes, or our own kind of kingdom. Uh, the place we live in, Eugene, there's, there's little kingdoms here. Apparently I missed out on the guy throwing $200,000 out. To, didn't even know about it. There's all kinds of kingdoms clamoring for our attention. If you will be a part of my kingdom, you will get this and this and this benefit. If, you do things, if I get to do things my own way, if I get to be my own king, which we're Americans, we're all trying to be our own kings or queens or things will be so much better. I can secure by my own hand and might the power and the dominion and the authority that I need. I can make myself comfortable. I can pleasure myself. I can make myself secure. I have to do this myself because it's important to me. And no, I don't need your help. And no, you can't take this from me. And eventually that's going to break down. It's all going to break down. In the end, there will only be one kingdom left standing. Only one left standing. And the question you need to ask yourself is this, am I going to be a part of that kingdom? Am I going to be a part of that one remaining kingdom that the Son in humility presents and gives back to His Father, His Heavenly Father? Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, Jesus, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. There's so many wonderful things happening here. So we get this movement in these passages of the humility and love of God the Father that gives everything and puts everything under the feet 
of God the Son. God the Son, in humility, receives from the Father. In humility, he does his own work to reign so that he can give everything in humility and love back to the Father. It's this dance of humility and love between Jesus and God. We see some of the workings of our triune God taking place in this passage here, in this movement. So uh, we can read this passage and think in terms of rank, rank within the Trinity. Uh, I think that's a very human way of thinking. We like to have a pecking order. We like to know who's on top, who's next, who's... I don't think that God himself thinks along those same lines as far as uh, ranking in that sense. I think God delights in love and humility. The yearning of the Father is to give everything to the Son, to put everything under the Son. The yearning and desire of the Son is to give everything back to his Father. And that kind of love dynamic, there's no sense of pecking order in something like that. (coughs) It's this yearning and this dance between God. And it begins with God and it ends with God so that God may be all in all. So in verse 24 through 28, we have a second set of chiasms, a second set of verses written in chiastic structure. But this chiasm moves a little bit differently this time. Instead of a A, B, A, B kind of snake pattern, it's a A, B, C, B, A. So it's going in deeper to this middle thought and then coming back out again. Let me illustrate that. So it begins in verse 24. Christ delivers the kingdom of God uh, to God the Father, verse 24. And then Christ must reign until all enemies are subjected to him, from verse 25, Psalm uh, 110. And then something happens in the middle. And then God subjects all things under Jesus' feet, from verse 27, Psalm 8. And then Christ himself is subject to the Father again, or from verse 27, this is the first one. And then Christ himself is subject to the Father again in verse 28. So A-type thoughts, there's very similar things that are being said there. B-type thoughts, there's a similarity between those. Can you see this in the text? We, kinda, we typically run right past this stuff. And this is the kind of like digging kind of stuff. So yeah, I admit your preacher's nerding out a little bit today. And, uh, but it's so wonderful just to find that the genius of the, uh, of the scriptures, the way they work. And I don't, I don't know where Paul ends and those who write, wrote the New Testament ends and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit begins and how that interplay happens exactly. But there is richness in our Bible to be explored and lived and understood and we try it on and we begin to try to be obedient to it there are just layers within the scriptures themselves so before we look at the middle let's take a look at the two psalms that are mentioned in the B section 
Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So Paul is alluding to that psalm, we think, in 110. Psalm 110 in the, the verse that was before that, verse 25. And now in verse 27, he alludes to Psalm 8. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Why is that in the plural there? That's the psalm. Do you recognize the psalm that says, uh, uh, what is man, mankind, that you were mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. What he's describing is the place of humanity where we were created to be with other things under our dominion. We are made to reign and rule under God's dominion as well. And we lost in many ways that place when we have chosen in Adam sin and dealing with the consequences of that sin, death. So Paul is describing in this uh, Romans 8 the place, the rightful place of men and women who are created in the image of God. You bear the image of God, and that means something. It's a glorious thing. And Jesus leads the way back to our rightful place of glory as image bearers of our God. He leads us back to glory and honor with all things under our feet. That's a radical thing to to think about. Well, what about this middle verse, the sea kind of thing? Sometimes the way chiasms work is that they shine a spotlight on the verse that comes in the middle, that verse that holds something very special. And you can think of a a chiasm as a kind of treasure map almost. And the verse or phrase in the very middle is, is the treasure. And without a chiasm, you could easily run right past this and be like, yeah, that's nice. Where's the good stuff? And run right past the good stuff while you're doing that. Uh, You have thought echo in scripture And sometimes it's not just the author being word. You ever notice, like, why is he saying this, like, the same way again? Can't he just cut to the chase? And it's just like he's repeating himself and saying it, the the same thing in different ways. You can run right past the real treasure. And some of these, these, these repeats are certain sign markers to have us take a closer look. Pay attention to what's about to come. So I think about the way that this works. I decided one year, this is a story. I decided one year I want to make things special for my kids. And we're living in Tennessee, and we're going to have a special Easter egg hunt on an Easter Sunday. And I get all these plastic eggs, and I go out in the backyard, and I want the kids to be excited about it. But my kids are old enough that candy and eggs, they'll just be like, yeah. So I'm putting... Ones, fives, tens, twenties, and $50 bills in the Easter eggs. And I tell the girls what I'm doing. And they are excited. Now, Caitlin, my oldest daughter, 
She's too cool and dignified for this. But she needs the money. So you know she's going to do it. Sadie, my middle daughter, is like all on board. Don't get in my way. I'll kick you out of my way. I am going to win and dominate this. And who do you think ended up with the most eggs? Of course, it's my Sadie. And then Haley, the youngest, has that drive and knows this is important. Her big sisters are going in front of her, but she isn't quite able to keep up in the same way. So the way a chiasm works is it points to something and says, pay attention to this thing in the middle. And so uh, the, the girls are getting ready to go and they're going out and they see some of the eggs and they're just in a tear and Haley's going to be worried about getting her own. I can't keep up with my big sisters. Haley, go look in the raised beds over by the tomato plants. That's what a chiasm does. That's where the $50 egg is hiding. <laughs> so that's some of the brilliance and genius of our scriptures and the Bible to help us pay attention to certain things. So this verse in the middle, verse 26, the last enemy, death. Death is defeated. And we could just run right past that. But this is a hinge. This is a treasure. This is something, a kind of hope that you can build your life on. So this chiasm begins and ends with the joyful humility of the son who delights in giving everything back to his father. And the B section uh, then further in, the Son reigns over all. And He does this through the power of God who puts everything under His feet. And finally, that treasure in the middle is that time when death itself will be swallowed up by life. What is the power of death? To keep things dead, I guess. What brings death to nothing? When death can no longer keep things dead, when there's no longer decay. I, I, if you were to personify death, there's another one. They're starting to pop up all over the place. What is going on? Why aren't they staying down? What is the power that makes dead things come back to life? It's the power of resurrection. Resurrection. At least some in Corinth were denying a bodily resurrection. And Paul is saying, no. Everything hinges right here. This is the treasure right here. Do not let go of that treasure. You cling to this hope. Cling to it. So Paul finishes this section of Scripture now with two more examples of absurdity of any form of Christianity that lets go of resurrection. 
This first one is a little bit confusing. Wow, I jumped like multiple. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? From verse 29. So whatever this is, without resurrection, whatever this is, does not make sense. That's Paul's point. His point isn't to say, hey, do this. Hey, all the churches are doing this. This is something that you're supposed to be doing. This is what it is. Let me explain this. There's just this one verse, but there's so much controversy surrounding this verse. Uh, uh, Just quickly, there's a lot going on grammatically. There's a lot going on contextually. We just don't have a big enough context. This is not talked about anywhere else in the scriptures. So it's really hard to understand, and it's a bit of a controversy, controversial issue today because it's something that Mormons practice, vicarious baptism for people who have already died. Well, there's no evidence of this in the scriptures or other historical writings that vicarious baptisms should take place for people who have died. And there's nothing that indicates that this was a normative practice for the church. Later on, the early church fathers, they forbid and condemned this practice, probably for the reason of trying to clear up some confusion about 1 Corinthians 15, 29, Uh, because it's the only verse that says something like this. So whereas all other church traditions throughout history have kind of just said, well, we don't know fully what this means, and there's a bit of mystery there. Uh, Mormons have come along and said, this is what this is. It means this and this and this and this and oh yeah, this too. And this is the way you do it and follow this example. And this is a law for all time. And that's kind of what's happening there a little bit. And there's more possibilities as well. Uh, And if you want to learn more about this, you can come talk to me. I can point you into books and books of controversy that you can wade through on your own if you're interested. I'm content for just saying, hey, this is a mystery we don't fully understand. And whatever this is, it makes no sense without resurrection. And for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? That would have been a show, wouldn't it? Watching Paul fight off wild beasts in Ephesus. The hardships this man went through. Constant threats, the beatings. The travel he underwent, the hardships of travel in that day, that this guy, can you imagine not just doing that because you choose to? No, he has a hope. He has a hope that is so strong that it leads him through all the tough stuff. In some ways, that's all of the apostles. Why would they make that up if it's going to cost? Are you going to make up something that's going to make people hate you and cost you your life? 
And then he goes on. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some of you who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. That's tough words. Paul is trying to move them away from this ridiculous place. And so he's quoting Epicurean philosophers uh, who denied any kind of resurrection of the dead. And uh, yeah, you let go of resurrection. I can eat all the meat I want in pagan temples in front of whoever I want. And I have knowledge. It doesn't even matter. It's no big deal. Have sex with your stepmom. It's no big deal. It doesn't even matter. The resurrection of the dead? It's just something that was made up for the comfort of, you know, maybe people who are grieving or... But I know better. And be like me. You can do whatever you want. This is a kind of thinking where there's no problem with sin. Sin is not an issue. It's just, it just happens. It's not, it's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. Hakuna Matata. It's a Swahili phrase. I'm from, Ta- I lived in Tanzania, so a real Swahili speaker would never say Hakuna Matata. Hamnashida, maybe, or the Sakuma. Nduhu Makoe. Don't let it worry you. No sweat. Means no worries for the rest of your life. Hakuna Matata. All right, there's your Disney moment. We're wrapping up here. Just go have a good time while you can. Eat and drink because who knows when the show is going to die. Get what you can while you can. That's this Epicurean philosophy. And Paul is saying, wake up. What are you doing? Wake up. Stop sinning. The people who you hang around, it matters. The stuff you are letting in, it matters. Are you really so ignorant about God that there is a God in heaven? You don't think he's just? Don't be so easily deceived. We don't have time for this kind of garbage. We have a mission. We have work to do. We are those who live now for God. We are the people who live now for God. We are the people who long for God to be all in all. That God may be all in all. So, uh, one last verse to close this morning. Brother Jim, you can come up here. We see this movement of humility between God Himself. Humility of the Son presenting the kingdom to God the Father. Christ ruling until everything 
becomes his footstool and becomes subject to him. And then the treasure in the middle, the thing that focuses in when death is defeated in the power of resurrection. And then God subjects all things. God's the one who puts all things under Jesus' feet, quoting that Psalm 8. And then God himself, or then Christ himself, is subject to God the Father in humility. So this movement, it must have been really formative for Paul's thinking. Because he doesn't just talk about this in 1 Corinthians. A couple years later, this is like the forefront of his, his thinking in Romans chapter 8 where he wrote this other letter that expounds on this idea of resurrection. Specifically, this idea of longing and desire for the defeat of death and the redemption not just of mankind or not just the redemption of humanity, but the redemption of all creation. It is the heart's cry that we feel in our depths through the Holy Spirit that rejoices when we hear Jesus Christ say, Behold, I make all things new. See, I make all things new. Creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. The time when death is defeated and all things become new. The time when death is swallowed by life. Do we have that longing, church? Do we still hold that hope of resurrection? If you need the prayers of this church, if there's some way we can help you uh, to put the Lord on in baptism, to uh, pray for you and any life issues, uh, I'll be up here up front and we'll sing an invitation song and you can come share that with me and we'll pray for you. We want to help you as a church any way we can. Um, To God be the glory. Let's go ahead and stand and sing together.